All right, well, good morning, church. All right, well, let's recap. We're going to be in Genesis, finishing up Genesis chapter 35 this morning. We're going to be starting in verse 16. And so we'll recap really quickly. As you remember, Jacob and uh, his tribe, it's probably you know, a couple hundred people easily. With the, You remember uh, at the events of what happened at the end, the last time they, they took all the women and the children after they murdered all the, all the men. So they have a large tribe of people, and they're headed back to his father Isaac. And it's roughly from, from where they started, back from Haran, where Laban, Jacob's uncle, lived, back to Mamre, or Hebron, where Isaac lives, is roughly a 500-mile journey. Uh, so, but, but they're really close. They're within a few days uh, of where Isaac lives. And, but once they cross into the land of Canaan, however, uh, after Jacob and Esau are reunited, Jacob just sort of buys land, builds a house around Shechem, and he settles in. He's only like 50 miles, believe it or not, from Isaac at this point. But he buys all this land, settles in, and he stops, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was being partially obedient but that's still being disobedient. And so he settled down. He stays there in that area, and he possibly stayed there for quite a number of years, possibly even like 10 years. They actually just stayed there. Um, but it cost his family. Right? His disobedience cost his family. And, I mean, it's a tough chapter to read, uh, you know, with the rape and the abduction of Dinah and the treachery of Jacob's sons and, you know, Dinah, Dinah his, his daughter, is defiled, and the man who defiled her doesn't apologize, of course, because unmarried women were considered fair game, and this was culturally acceptable, and he didn't see his actions are wrong or, as Im- or immoral in any way. But Jacob did, of course, and Jacob's sons did, obviously. But Jacob doesn't really instruct his sons on how to behave or how to react. He seemingly disappears after the events start, right? He, he, he was there. He knew what had happened. He was waiting for his sons to come in from the field. And when his sons came in, he's out of the picture. He's gone. We don't have any picture of Jacob instructing his sons on what to do next. And when godly men don't take appropriate leadership or don't step up you know, in their family in that way, then it creates a void. And that void is often filled sinfully, which is how the sons filled it. And that's what happened, right? Simeon and Levi, they tricked the Canaanites into thinking that they're going to allow their sister to be married to the man who defiled her as long as this man and all the other men in this area of Shechem here get circumcised. And of course, the men agreed to it. So while they're incapacitated, recovering from the circumcision, then Levi and Simeon come in and they murder all the men. And then the rest of the brothers come in and they plunder the town and they take all the goods and they take all the animals and they take all the women and they take all the children. And they just, you know, it's devastating. And of course, when Jacob found out, he was appalled. But he was seemingly more concerned about his reputation than anything else. But there wasn't a lot he could say. Because in his inaction, uh, in his failure to lead and, and to speak up, he was just as guilty or as complicit as they were. He didn't really tell them no. He didn't say, hey, this isn't the right thing to do. He just kind of let them do it. I'm not sure if he was aware of what they were doing or not, but he didn't have much to say to the point after the fact. He couldn't say much, but God had something to say. Right? So God tells Jacob, come to Bethel. Remember where you first met me? Come to Bethel. Remember the verse? 
from Jesus talking to the churches in, in Revelation, return to your first love, right? Return to where we first met. Build an altar there. Worship me. It was, so Jacob tells everyone, he says, listen, purify yourselves. Put away your foreign gods. Bury them. Get rid of them. Right? And, we, and we find from that picture part of the problem that had been within the whole family at this time, which is that they were spiritually compromised in their faith. I mean, how can you worship both the one true God and all these false pagan gods at the same time? You can't, right? You can't be in the world and of the world. You're not supposed to be. We need to be set apart. Otherwise, our lives get weakened, right? They get weakened by the, the false gods and the worldly values and our morals and ethics get diluted. And we end up being conformed to the world instead of being transformed by the word of God. And that's kind of where we're going to pick it up this morning because they went to Bethel and they got rid of the idols and they purified themselves and God redeemed Jacob. He restored Jacob, right? There was uh, redemption and forgiveness. They repented, to the Lord. But the one thing you have to remember, and this is so true in the life of Jacob, but it's really true for our lives as well, and this is a hard one to swallow sometimes, is that just because we've returned to our first love, just because we've repented, just because we're forgiven, just because, doesn't mean that life gets easier. Right? It doesn't mean that things are going to get easier. It doesn't mean that your life's going to go now, become a bed of roses. Right? Just because you know, this, maybe the struggles that you were going through were partially your fault. Maybe the struggles you were going through were because of your sin. Maybe the struggles you were going through were things that you caused yourself. And now you've repented of those things and you're turned away from them and you've taken a new step forward, redeemed by Christ. Okay, it's a new day. Fantastic. And that day is going to suck like the rest of them, right? It can, it can be that way. There's, there's nothing that says that it's going to get better necessarily. Doesn't mean it won't just doesn't mean it is either. So you have to be aware that just because we've returned to our first love, just because we have a life, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Tribulation with a little t. But in the world you will have tribulation. It's going to happen. right? So just because you've returned, just because Jacob returns to his first love, is, doesn't mean it's going to get easier for him, and it doesn't get easier for him. Jacob's life is a life of sorrow. I mean, honestly. I mean, you look at all that Jacob's gone through, it really is a life of sorrow. Uh, there's going to be constant trials that will test us. There's going to be constant trials that are going to challenge us. And what are they going to challenge us or test us to do? They're going to challenge us to trust God. That's what they're going to challenge us. So we're going to have these trials. And they're going to challenge us to trust God. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Because these challenges that Jacob's going to go through now are just that, challenges for him to trust God. Right? And, not, and like I said, if we're being honest, this is exactly how our lives are as well. Right? They're full of joy, they're full of sorrow, just as Jacob's life was and will be. And in the midst of all that, it's a challenge for us. It's a challenge for us to put our faith in God and to continue to trust him as we go through these things. Right? So I want you to ponder a couple of questions, three questions. Two of them are kind of like the same question, but three questions. I want you to ponder these questions as we go through this. First question, are joy and sorrow entwined? All right? Interweaved, if you wish. Second question, which I said is kind of like the first, but not really. Does one lead to another? Right? Does joy lead to sorrow or sorrow lead to joy? Which one came first, chicken or the egg? Right? And then the third question is, 
kind of more a bonus. What does this all have to do with Bethlehem? Right? Those are your three questions as we go through this uh, this morning. So let's read Genesis 35, verses 16 through 29. It says, Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Eprath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Eprath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Well, Israel lived in that land. Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these words, and I pray, Lord, that you, your spirit, just speak them to us. Your spirit is here, Lord, and it, you know, dwells in us, and it leads us in the way of truth. So I just pray, Lord, that you just continue to speak us these words to us and, and draw us, Lord, closer to you. And, uh, and help us understand, Lord, that, that you are with us at all times, in the midst of all things, even in the midst of great sorrow, like what Jacob is going to go through here. So we thank you, Lord, for this. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Believe it or not, it tells us in the Bible... It's in Ecclesiastes. It says, uh, it's in chapter 7. It says, sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of fate, face, the heart is made glad. And you're probably going to read that and think, no, it's not. No. Sorrow is not better than laughter. I would much rather laugh than cry. But there's a difference. Because what you go through in sorrow brings you to a different point and to a different place than what you go through in laughter. Sorrow makes things more reflective. You look back on things. You see what happened and what's going on and what was the Lord doing. It brings you to the Lord. I'm not saying that laughter doesn't bring you to the Lord, but laughter puts you in a different place than sorrow does. So the, God's word says sorrow is better than laughter. Because for by sadness, right, the heart is made glad. So what does sorrow lead to? It leads to joy in that sense. It goes on to say in Ecclesiastes that the heart of the wise is in the house of the morning. Right? But the heart of the fools is in the house of the mirth. So therefore he's saying those who are wise actually kind of hang out in the place where more people are sorrow, where there's more sorrow. Those who are just, you know, laughing and they're just the fools. It's kind of a hard one to wrap your head around sometimes because when we think about sorrow, we're like, I don't want to be there. I don't want to go through that. We've all been through it. We've all had moments, right? 
of that. So we know, and we don't, we don't want to relive some of those. We're like, what? That wasn't really. But where did it take you? Where did that sorrow take you? How did that sorrow grow you? Right? And did that sorrow lead to joy? What was it that you went through? We're going to see this here with Jacob. They're on the road. They're heading from Bethel to Hebron. It's only like a three-day journey. It might even be longer now with all the people that he's carrying along, considering that the first time, right, when he was just on foot coming from, you know. But he's just outside Ephrath. It's, you know, pronounced Ephrath, right? And Ephrath means uh, ash heap or fruitful. It's like the two most opposite things you can think of. And the word means, it can mean both, ash heap or fruitful, right? And that's the contrast of this entire chapter, by the way. And we see these different, these two things, sorrow and joy, ash heap and fruitful, right? So you have Ephrath. Now Ephrath is also, as it told us here, Bethlehem, right? So Rachel goes into labor and it tells us that she goes into hard labor and it's possibly early labor as in they weren't expecting it. They knew obviously that she was pregnant. They weren't expecting her to go into labor yet, uh, but she goes into labor in the midst of their trip. And like I said, they're only a few days away, maybe, you know, who knows, maybe they're halfway already. We don't know where they are on the road um, to getting to Isaac, but you get the impression it wasn't expected and, it, and, and there were complications, obviously. Now, if you remember back in Genesis 29 and 30, when Rachel and Leah were seemingly in competition to who could give birth to who and who could provide the most sons for Isaac and all that little, you know, soap opera drama that was playing out in those chapters. And, you know, Leah gives birth to the first four sons. Uh, And then Rachel's envious of her sister. And if you remember what she says at the beginning of chapter 30, she says, give me children or I shall die. Know kind of how prophetic her words were when she said that. Because now here she is giving birth to her second son, Benjamin, and literally she's dying. She also then gave her servant Bilhah to Jacob, and Bilhah gave birth to his next two sons, and Leah gave her servant, you know, Zilpah to Jacob, and she gave birth to two more sons, and then Leah gave birth to two more sons, and you know, it just went on. It said at the end, it says, God remembered Rachel and he gave, and she gave birth to Joseph. And she said, the Lord has taken away my reproach. May the Lord add to me another son. Well, Joseph's name means add or um, increase. But it also sounds like the Hebrew word that means take away. So there's another contrast right there, right? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. It's right in his name, Joseph. So she says those two things. The Lord has taken away my reproach, but he has added to me another son. Well, she's giving thanks to the Lord for the fact that he's increased right, her children. He's given her some increase, but she's also looking forward, hoping for more children when she says that. Well, God's given her more children. Right? May the Lord add to me another. So it would seem now that the final victory is hers because... The Lord is doing exactly that. Her, Jacob's 12th son was born, even though her and her sister are no longer in competition. Yet, there's no joy. Right? There's no joy in this birth, only sorrow, because it says her soul was departing her. We, like I said, we don't know what the complications was, but, but she was dying. And in a sense, she was giving her life for his. 
right? Death is giving birth to life. Often the greatest tragedies give birth to indescribable joys. But yet, instead of naming her son a name like would have been given to the other sons, for example, as good fortune or happy or praise, like what Judah means. She names her son Benoni. It's pronounced Ben-Aven. That's how it's pronounced in the Hebrew. And it means son of sorrow, right? Son of my sorrow. Son of affliction. Not exactly the name that you want sticking with you. To be constantly reminded of that your, when you were born, your mother died. It's not exactly the name that Jacob wants to be reminded of either. Every time he would have to call his son to be reminded of the fact that when he was born, his love, Rachel, died. So Jacob steps in. And I don't know how quick he did this. I don't know if he renamed him right away. But of all the sons that were born to Jacob, this is the only one that he named. Okay? And he names him Benjamin. I'm thinking he stepped in right away. He's like, no, no, we're not going with that name. Right? And so he steps right in and names him Benjamin. So Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And right hand, of course, is a place of honor. Right hand is, a, 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 is associated with great strength. Right? The Bi- Bible uses the right hand as a symbol of strength and honor. Psalm 138.7, right? Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me, right? And ultimately we see this in Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God. Right? It tells us in Colossians 3.1, if you, then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Or Hebrews 12.2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, I would always stop at that phrase, Catch that phrase if you have never caught it before. Who for the joy that was set before him? What's the joy that was set before Christ? It was the cross. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we don't know exactly why. I mean, it's not told us exactly why Jacob renamed him Benjamin, but we get the idea. We get the idea. And, but the picture we see here is a very simple picture, but it's a really fantastic picture because it's a picture of grace and it's a picture of mercy. Jacob was not going to let his son live with a name that might have brought sorrow to his son's life or even shame, right? Not to mention how Jacob was going to feel about it himself, Right? To Jacob, it would probably have been sorrow upon sorrow. That's how the Bible describes when a loved one passes away. It's sorrow upon sorrow. So for Jacob, it probably would have been sorrow upon sorrow. And so he redeems him. He restores him to a place of honor. He puts Benjamin at his right hand because of his love for Benjamin. Right? It's such a great picture. Here's the thing. Jacob understood the power of having your name changed. He went from Jacob to Israel. Right? The world might have tried to define Benjamin by his mother's death. Jacob wanted him known to be known by strength and honor. And that's something you should remember because the world defines us by a name that they think fits, right? You remember that the name Christian 
The term Christian is a term that was originally used to mock those who followed Jesus. It was not, uh, you know, uh, they weren't being polite right, when they called people Christians. That's how the name first got used. They, they were followers of the way. They were followers of Christ. And then they started mocking them and calling them Christians. Little Christs. Right? And it was a mocking term. They were mocking the followers of Jesus. So the world labeled them with this title as, in the sense of mocking them. But God says, whoa, no, don't listen to how they're naming you. Don't listen to how they're going to try and shame you or mock you with the name that they're going to give you. Because what that means to me is that you're my children. Right? See, Jesus has new names for us. It tells us in Revelation 2.17. Right? It says, to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus has a name for you. That's what you need to cling to. How Jesus sees you, what your identity is in Christ, not what the world calls you, because the world will try and call you all kinds of different things, right? Oh, you're, you're a conservative. Oh, you're a Republican. Oh, you're, you're an enemy of the state. Oh, you're, you know, whatever name. they. Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, one of those Christians. Oh, you evangelical loonies, right? Or whatever. You know, you're holy roller. You're going to go back to the, you know, some of the terms they used to, to, to throw out at the Christians and, and stuff like that. Oh, you know, they're going to give you these, these names and they're doing it to try and mock you or to shame you or to humiliate you. But you have to remember who you are in Christ Jesus. And he tells you, listen, you're chosen, you're blessed, you're loved, you're forgiven, you're redeemed. And so they can throw whatever name they want at you. You just need to remember who you are in Christ. Because none of those other names matter. And that's kind of what Jacob's, that's the picture we're seeing here. Jacob's love was so great for his son. He said, listen, the world could try and shame you or humiliate you by this name because it's going to remind you of your mother's death. They're going to say, oh, you're the mother killer, right? You're the son of sorrow, you killed your mom when you were born. So I, don't, I want you to be known by strength and honor. So he changed his name. What a great picture of the love that he has for his son. So Rachel passes away and Jacob buries her just outside Eprath. And I, you know, I was like, well, he was so close. Why didn't she get buried in the cave with the rest of the family, right? And Epirath, of course, is known as Bethlehem. Moses writes here and lets us know that the marker was still seen in his day. So at the time Moses put this down, Rachel's tomb, the marker was still there. Everyone knew exactly where it was. This picture that we have up here on, on the slide here is a drawing from the 1500s of Rachel's tomb. Now that's just one of the areas. There's like three areas that are in contention for where Rachel's tomb is. But that's one of the most prominent. It's still there today. However, if you were to go to Google Maps and, and you were to go to street view and try to view this, what you would see is just a big wall. That's all you would see because it's the West Bank area and there's the whole wall that's up there and you can't, you can't see. You can go visit this if Bethlehem is open because Bethlehem's not always open to tourists. You can go visit this if Bethlehem is open if you're over in the area and you can go in and visit Rachel's tomb. But you can't just take a picture of it like this anymore or draw a picture of it. Like you won't, won't see it like that. I tried to get a picture with Google Maps. You can't do it. Anyway, one thing to remember here. This is the first mention of Bethlehem in the Old Testament. 
And the first mention of Bethlehem in the Old Testament has to do with death. The first mention of Bethlehem in the New Testament has to do with birth. Hmm. Now, it's taught that Jacob did not bury her in the cave at Machpelah because of a few different reasons. One, and this is a really interesting one, he foresaw the destruction of the first temple. He foresaw the exile of the Jews. And knowing that as they would be led out of Israel, they would cry out as they passed her grave. They would come out on this road and they would cry out as they passed her grave. And he thought that Rachel could comfort them as they passed and intercede on their behalf for mercy from God. Um, you think, oh, that's kind of interesting. Kind of, hmm. Two, the second reason was just a real simple one, which is probably the more common sense one, if you really think about it. Jacob didn't have time to embalm her properly, whatever the reason, right? He didn't have time to embalm her properly to take her home to Hebron. Uh, so he just, like, we have to bury her here, even though we're only a couple of days away, whether because of, you know, possibly what had happened, they had to bury her there. And three, he didn't want to bury her in the cave because he didn't want to prevent any shame from his forefathers because of the fact that he had multiple wives. And it was sort of a forbidden union for him to have multiple wives. So he didn't want to have to have two wives buried in the cave. That wouldn't look really good. Now, most of those I just dismiss. I'm like, we don't know the real reason. You know, I would think, if anything, it was just more of a, a sanitary thing. He just didn't have the, the time to properly prepare her to, for the, the rest of the trip. So they just needed to bury her there. Now, that first reason about him foreseeing the destruction of the temple and the exile of the Jews, etc., you might think that's kind of a crazy thing. But I'm going to let you know that that is something that the Jews actually believed. All right? Now, we see this in a couple different ways. If you remember in Matthew chapter 2, when Herod went and heard, you know, was know, knew that Christ was going to be born, uh, and he went, you know, the genocide went out and killed all the baby boys in, Bar in uh, Bethlehem who were two years and under. When that happens, it's written there, right, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, that what was fulfilled was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And he's quoting Jeremiah 31.15 when he says that a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel, Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew, when he wrote that, he kind of looked at, at those as prophetic words that were being fulfilled at the time of Christ's birth through Herod massacring the children. He was symbolically, he was just sort of saying, hey, this was, you know, this is fulfillment of prophecy of Rachel weeping for her children. But when you actually go to Jeremiah and read the verses, there's another context as well. And the context within the book of Jeremiah is Rachel weeping in despair over the exiled tribes. Okay? And then verses 16 and 17 give this promise in Jeremiah 31, which is, Thus saith the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Which right, is is also being fulfilled because Israel is a nation again and the Jews are all coming back to their homeland. But in, in 
Jeremiah, that's the actual context of, of the verses. Rachel is weeping over the fact that Israel is in exile. So that idea that the Jews, that first idea about why possibly Jacob buried her there, it's actually something that the Jews, they firmly believe. They actually believe that when the Messiah comes, he's going to lead the Jews back into Israel along that road and right by her grave. That's what they, some of them actually teach. So that we think of that, that's like a crazy thought, but that's kind of how I thought of it. That's a really kind of a weird one. But the truth is they actually thought that. It's here. It's in uh, Jeremiah. That's exactly what they thought. Also want to read you Isaiah 51:11, which is also Isaiah 35:10. Okay, it's this this verse is twice in Isaiah. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So there was sorrow. Sorrow by the death of Rachel. But when, you know, Israel returns, there's going to be joy. Gladness and joy. So there's kind of like a double prophetic message from those verses about Rachel crying. Her sorrow will turn to joy. She will be comforted with the assurance that her children will be miraculously returned to her. But her children are is Israel. Sorrow does not get the last word. Right? Sorrow does not get the last word. You may think it does, but sorrow does not get the last word. I mean, more sorrow is going to be coming Jacob's way. Think about this right here, just in this chapter, right? Here, right before we get to the end, we find that his son, Reuben, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. That's more sorrow for Jacob. Then, of course, at the end, Isaac, he gets home, and his father Isaac, who's 180 years old, passes away, and he and Esau have to bury Isaac. That's more sorrow for Jacob. So he has more sorrow. You might think sorrow's getting the last word because this is just a this, this is really just a depressing section. Right? So there was just more sorrow. Now, and within that there's actually even more sorrow that you're not even aware of. It's kind of hidden in there. It's hidden in there because it tells you the age of Isaac, who was 180. And if you really want to do the math, you, you'll know that that meant Jacob and Esau were 120 years old when their father died. And Jacob dies when he's 147, after he had spent 17 years in Egypt. It tells you that in Genesis chapter 47. So if you subtract and do the math, 17 years from Jacob's life to account for his time in Egypt, we have 130 years. That means that he's 130 when he entered Egypt. That means 10 years prior to him entering Egypt, he was 120 when Isaac died. All right? Well, we know that Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he was 30 when he became governor of Egypt. And when he was 30, uh, his first seven years of governor were the seven years of plenty, and then the famine began. And that's when Joseph's brothers and Isaac eventually or not Isaac, but Jacob, Israel, came to Egypt by grain when Joseph was 37 years old. Right? And they had moved to Egypt when, within a year. So when he was 38. And Israel, then Jacob, would have been 130. So that means Joseph would have been about 28 years old when his grandfather Isaac died. Which means not only was Jacob 
dealing with the sorrow of having lost his wife, the, you know, the, the wrongful actions of his sons, burying his father, but he was also dealing with the sorrow of having a son who had been sold into slavery that he thought was dead, Joseph, all at the same time. And we think that happened afterwards just because that's how the story is laid down in Genesis. But that actually happened in the midst of that. That's sorrow. I mean, I, I, when I read this, I think to myself, how much can he handle? How much can you handle? How much sorrow does one person need? Right? I, I find it overwhelming to just read it. But there is hope. There is hope. Psalm 113.7 says that he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Ash heap. Oh, what, what was that? Epirath, right? Means ash heap. Ash heap is where Rachel is buried. It also means what? It means fruitful. Which is a strange picture, I agree. Interesting contrast, but what, what is it? Out of the ashes, right? Out of death, out of sorrow. What comes? Life life. Right? The seeds of sorrow bear what? They bear fruit. Psalm 30 verse 5, right? Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. We sang it this morning. And so I asked, I said, are joy and sorrow entwined? Are they interweaved as it were? And the answer is yes. They are. And then they also ask with that, like, does one lead to another? Does joy lead to sorrow or sorrow lead to joy? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it does. Right? Absolutely. Sorrow and joy run side by side. In your life, sorrow and joy will always run together. You might have times of more joy and less sorrow. You might have times of more sorrow and less joy, but they always run together. In the midst of sorrow, we find joy. In the midst of joy, we're going to have sorrows. Suffering is the seed that produces joy, and joy can come after suffering. And believe it or not, joy can come in the midst of suffering. And I think all of that is illustrated within Bethlehem itself. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6 tells us, And O you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And when they're saying that verse, they're quoting Micah 5, 2, basically. Right? It says, O Bethlehem, which means house of bread, epitath, right? Which can mean ash heap or fruitful. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you shall come forth... For me, one who has become the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. What are those verses about? Those verses are prophetic. It's about the birth of who? It's the birth of Jesus. Who came from Bethlehem? Jesus did. If it were not for the birth of Jesus, Bethlehem would only be remembered for the death of Rachel. Yet today, instead of remembering just the sorrow, what do we have instead? We have great tidings, right? We have tidings of great joy. That's what we have instead of tears of sorrow. Because today we remember it for the birth of Jesus. 
And Jesus said in John 16, verses 20 to 22, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will what? Will turn into joy. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish right? for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. Jesus is telling you, listen, there's going to be sorrow and there's going to be joy, but ultimately how it's going to end up is joy. And no one's going to be able to take it from you. Yes, it's going to be like giving birth. So, <laughs> we all, a lot of us can remember what that's like, right? When our son Hudson was born, the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. We didn't know that. We had no idea. I'm not on that end of things, right? I'm, I'm sitting up here next to Julie, who's like, put down the phone, don't live stream this, please, right? <laughs> when, when Dixon was born, I like live blogged the entire thing. All right, she's, you know, I kept updating my blog with updates about how far along we were and what was happening. She told me I couldn't do that with Hudson. But, but I'm up here holding Julie's hand, right? She's having contractions and pushing Hudson out, and, and Hudson's got the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. And none of it, we didn't know about it. Now, I think she knew something was up just because they brought in the crash cart and they brought in all these nurses and everybody was coming into the room in case there was going to be a problem after we was born. Uh, Jody knew, Jody was our doula. She knew what was going on because she was standing at the other end of things. She knew what was going on. She obviously is smart enough not to tell us because we probably would have panicked. Uh, or at least I would have. Whoa, what? Yeah. But you don't remember, like, we don't focus on that anymore. We don't really think much about it after the fact. I mean, when we were told after it was all done, he was just a bright, cheery baby at that point, right? Because it just came, he came out, the doctor took the umbilical cord off, he pinked right up, the doctor's like, no problem, right? Guys can go home, and all the nurses left, and there wasn't an issue, there was no emergency, nothing like that, right? But there was, but had we known that at the time, you can imagine, but there's that, in, in birth, there's the pain of giving birth, there's the contraction, there's all these other things that you don't know about, but once the child is born, that's all behind you now. All you can think of is the child you're holding, right? The beautiful child. When I handed Dixon to, Emily, to Julie, she was just like, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, right? She just repeated those words over and over again, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, right? Because she, I don't know, she's holding her child. And that's what Jesus was kind of talking about. He's like, listen, you're going to go through these times of sorrow. You're going to go through these times of pain. You're going to weep and you're going to lament. But guess what? I am going to return for you. I am coming back and your hearts are going to rejoice. And guess what? No one is going to take away your joy from you. No one will take away your joy from you. Ultimately, the sorrow is going to lead to joy. That's the promise. And so as I stated, sorrow, grief, pain, loss, guess what? These things do not get the last word. They don't. Jesus gets the last word. Right? And Jesus says that the time is coming when he is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. He says that there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. All these things will have passed away. That's all the former things. Right? He says that all who call on his name will be saved. 
So he tells us like in Romans chapter 5, right? Rejoice in your sufferings. And you're like, that's crazy. Right? But he says, rejoice in your sufferings because suffering produces, produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We can't be sorrowful and we can't be shamed when we have the hope of Christ. No matter what we're going through. It produces something else in us. This is why the Bible tells us that sorrow is greater than joy. Because look at what it produces in us. Hope. Joy. That's why we're told in James chapter 1, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Right? Because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, having its whole effect, will perfect you and complete you. You'll be lacking in nothing when it's through. That's what sorrow helps do. But you do that because you can have joy in the midst of the sorrow. And that's the joy that comes from Christ. So don't lose your joy. Don't lose your joy in the midst of sorrow. It's so easy for us to become overwhelmed by the sorrow that we forget that we are to rejoice and have joy because we lose sight of Jesus. So don't let that happen. Don't let the sin take away your joy. Don't let your fear take away your joy. It tells us in Romans 15, 13, it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So if you feel like your joy is slipping away because the sorrow is just too much, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to give it to Jesus. right? And let him fill you with all joy and peace so that you will abound in hope. So then you can have joy and rejoice even in the midst of the sorrow. Right? You can, be ab- you can abound in hope. You can find your joy in Jesus. Because why? Because you have eternal life in Jesus. That's why. And it can't be taken away. He's coming back for you, he says. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden. Right? He says, I will give you rest. That's why he tells you that. He says, give it to me. You, wanna f- you, you think you're losing that joy? And you're heavy laden and full of sorrow? Give it to me. You'll find rest. And you can rejoice and have joy. Right? Because Jesus tells us in Romans 8, 18, it's told to us in the word that Jesus, that we're promised that our present sorrow is nothing compared to the joy of our future glory. Nothing. Right? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. They don't compare. It doesn't compare. So if we keep our eyes on that, keep our eyes on the promise that Christ is returning for us. And that in Christ we have hope. And we, and we can't lose that. It's secure. He's promised he's coming for you. Then we can rejoice in all things. Right? Then we can rejoice in our sufferings and we can be joyful in the midst of our sorrows. Absolutely. Let's end with this verse. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9. It says, in this rejoice... Alright? So this is what you're supposed to rejoice in. In this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen? Let's pray. 
Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for the truth in this, which is that you are with us in the midst of our sorrow. You're with us in the midst of your pain. You're with us when we go through these trials and we go through these sufferings. And because you are with us in the midst of these things, Lord, we can rejoice and we can have joy. We can have joy in the midst of sorrow. Even though sorrow is so heavy and so overwhelming that sometimes we think we can't find our way out of it. The truth is we, we don't need to find our way out of it. We just need to remember you are with us in it and you will see us through it. So we thank you for that. We thank you for the hope that is found in that. We pray, Lord, that you just continue the work that's in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that we just continue to be a light and point people to Christ. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.